All right, if, if you wanna make your way back toward your seat. If you, if you have a Bible with you, uh, whether that's a, a hard copy or uh, a digital copy and you wanna open up, we're gonna, we're gonna spend our time this morning in Romans 9, verses one through five. But before we get to there, we're actually gonna do a little bit of a flyover of the early part of Romans, actually starting all the way back in Romans 1. So if you want to open up to Romans 1, we'll work our way forward, then we'll camp out at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. As you get situated, let's pray, and then we'll start. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the opportunity to come and, uh, and to declare that uh, you're deserving of glory above all other things. God, that that glory is yours forever, God, to praise you for uh, breaking the chains of our sin and giving us freedom by your grace through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord. We get to gather uh, on Sundays and proclaim that as a church body, as a family, and uh, God, it's always a blessing to be able to do that. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Uh, God, would you challenge us and convict us? Lord, would, would you take these words, God, and not just have them be things that we understand intellectually or that we see and kind of logically can follow as we look at the passage, God, but would you take the, the truth of your word, the implications of your word, God, and would you just press them into our hearts, Lord, so that we leave here uh, with hearts that long to align them are to align with yours, God, hearts that long to see the world the way you do, to be moved by the lost the way that you are, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if, you, if you set out on a long drive and you pull open the Maps application on your phone, you input you know, where you currently are to where you want to go, and it's a drive over you know, states worth of distance, your phone starts you out on a very zoomed out view of the route that you need to go there. And then as you get closer and closer to your destination, it zooms in further and further and further until you're looking at the very streets and whatnot that you need to turn on. Initially, you're just kind of seeing this is the interstate that I need to travel on for X number of hours or X number of miles. And then it works its way in smaller and smaller and smaller. That's what we need to do this morning. Anytime we come to uh, a new text or a new section of a text like we're going to do today in Romans, it's very, very helpful to ask ourselves, what came before this that helps me understand what I'm about to read? And so before we jump into Romans 9, 1 to 5, what I want to do is get us all on the same page in terms of what came before Romans 9. If you've been with us over the course of this series, a lot of this will be just refreshing and reviewing. If you haven't been with us, hopefully this catches us up all to the same spot so that Romans 9, 1 to 5 makes sense to us this morning. Romans 1, 1 down to Romans 1, 17 is just an introduction to the letter. Paul introduces himself. He introduces his desire to speak to and to visit the church at Rome. And then he gives what is essentially a thesis statement in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That statement, the righteous will live by faith, sets the course for the entirety of the rest of the letter of Romans. Paul's going to lay out the doctrine of justification. He's going to explain it, defend it, answer questions about it. The righteous living by faith, the grace of God received through faith, 
is the doctrine of justification. And so what happens from there is that Romans 1, 18 down to Romans 3, 20 is an explanation of sin, that due to the presence of sin, humanity cannot earn and does not deserve God's righteous, eternal favor. Starting in Romans 3, 21, and then continuing all the way to the end of chapter 5, if you're kind of flipping forward with me, that's an explanation of how we are saved, that God's righteous eternal favor is available, available to all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then starting in chapter 6, at the very beginning there in verse 1, and working all the way to the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul lays out what that new justified life should look like. All who are justified by Christ have new life in Christ. Those are the big section headings we've worked through up to this point. Let me give you another way to think about Romans. Romans is uh, the Bible's lengthiest, um, densest, most beautiful and intentional explanation of the doctrine of justification. And here's how Paul works through it. From Romans 1, 1 down to one seventeen, he says, I've experienced this. I'm not ashamed of it. I want you to experience it too. Beginning in Romans 1, 18, all the way through 3.20, Paul says, there's a universal need for this justification. All of humanity is sinned. That means all of humanity is deserving of God's wrath. And we all need to be saved. Starting in Romans 3.21 and working through the end of Romans chapter 5, Paul says, here's the means by which that justification comes. It is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then starting in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, Paul says, here are the blessings of that justification. You have union with Christ. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You have new life thanks to the presence of that Holy Spirit. There's no condemnation before the Lord. There's a guarantee of future glorification. There's the impossibility of being separated from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Those are the blessings of your justification. And then you arrive in Romans chapter 9. Let me point out one more thing in the big picture here before we start zooming in. As Paul has worked his way through this, on uh, a couple of different occasions up to now, and then this will be the third one, he's stopped to answer a question that's for Jewish Israelite people specifically, but it comes logically out of what he's been explaining. The first question a Jewish individual would have asked Paul in response to all that he's saying about justification is, now wait a second, I thought obedience to circumcision is the means by which Abraham was justified. And so Paul stops in Romans chapter four and he says, no, let me show you that faith has always been the means by which the grace of God uh, received through faith is the means by which humanity's always been justified. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, that's always been the case. It always will be the case that humanity is justified by the grace of God through faith. He continues on and as he starts to talk about what this new life in Christ should look like, there would be the logical Jewish question of, now, wait a second, I thought we were to bear the image of God. I thought we lived in right relationship with God by obeying the law, that all of the commands of scripture laid out, we just did our best to obey those. And so Paul stops in Romans chapter seven, and he says, you and I both know that's not possible. Despite our very best efforts and all of our energy to be obedient to every facet of the law, we all know that what the law actually does is expose the fact that we're sinful. It doesn't provide the means by which to escape our sin. It makes it painfully obvious that we have it. And so he answers that question. He continues on through Romans chapter 8. And at the end of chapter 8, he's given this unbelievable series of promises 
that your glorification is certain. Everyone who has been justified will absolutely be glorified. That nothing or no one could stand before God in the you know, eternal place of final judgment and bring a charge against you, accuse you, condemn you, offer any sort of judgment against you. And because of that, nothing can separate you from God. Unbelievable promises. The question at that point for a Jewish individual would have been, can we be sure that we can trust those promises? It would appear, a Jewish individual would say, that you're talking about Gentiles being brought into this gospel by grace through faith. And that you're talking about Israelite individuals, Jewish people being brought into the gospel by grace through faith. What about all of these other promises that we think think that we had read out of the Old Testament. It seems like all of Israel ought to be saved, not just those who have the grace of God by faith. Now, if we can't trust that promise, how can we trust the promises of Romans chapter 8? And so Paul says, let me explain that to you. What Paul does in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a continuation of the explanation of justification. In the broadest terms, rather than these smaller sections that we've looked at Romans through, you could look at Romans in two really big pieces. And this is the way most New Testament epistles are structured. There's a doctrinal portion first, then a practical portion second. Romans 1 through 11 is the doctrinal defense or explanation of justification. Romans 12 to the end through chapter 16 is the practical application of that doctrine. Romans 9, 10, and 11 continues the doctrinal section of this, uh, of this epistle, of the, the letter to the Romans. There's a danger here. Different people read Romans 9, 10, 11 a myriad of different ways. I recognize that. And I recognize that uh, most of those people are smarter than me. They've walked with Jesus longer than me. Uh, they're more knowledgeable than I am. I do and don't agree with some of those readings. So what we're going to do over the next couple of months as we work through these three chapters is we're going to look at Romans 9, 10, and 11 through one specific lens. And uh, that lens is the following. That in Romans 9, 10, and 11, there is a, uh, a display of the consistency and holiness of God's word and work in the justification of humanity. That Paul looks at that possible Israelite Jewish question and he says, what I need to do is I logically need to explain now that God is consistent and holy in how he's justified humanity throughout all time. That you can trust the promises of Romans 8 because God is consistent and he always has been. And so that's where Paul's going to go in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The danger, I think, is that some people look at Romans 9 in particular and they say that what Romans 9 does is offers it's like Paul stopped uh, the letter of Romans so that he could lay out a defense of the doctrine of predestination. Like the intent of the letter shifted when you got to Romans chapter 9 and Paul wanted to do something different. Proponents of predestination would look at Romans 9 and say, see, God predestines those who are going to be saved. Those who uh, are not proponents of predestination do the same thing from the opposite standpoint in Romans chapter 9. And they say, wait, 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 wait. That's not what this says. 
I think both approaches are to take this section of Romans and try to do something with them that Paul did not intend. Paul didn't stop Romans at the end of chapter eight and say, now I'm gonna insert my thoughts on predestination and then we'll pick it up and we'll keep going. He's writing one logical explanation of justification. So he has to stop and answer a question. Can I trust God's promises? As a Jewish individual, is he trustworthy or is he not? And so that's what's going to happen here. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he offers this dizzying, awe-inspiring explanation of a mystery about the consistency and the holiness of God's word and work in justifying humanity. Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, all three chapters function the same way. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul offers a personal identification with the Israelite people. In the middle of the chapter, he offers a doctrinal explanation. And then at the end of each chapter, he offers Old Testament scriptural authentication. All three chapters move the same way. Personal identification, doctrinal explanation, scriptural authentication. They do so from different views. Chapter nine is from the view of God's sovereignty or God's activity. Chapter 10 is from the view of humanity's activity or humanity's responsibility. And then chapter 11 is from the perspective of God's ultimate purpose. There's kind of the flyover of nine, 10, and 11 the display of the consistency and the holiness of God's word and work in justifying humanity. What happens is we look at a passage like Romans 9, 1 to 5, and we think, well, Paul doesn't say much there. I really need to get into the middle, the meat of chapter 6. Living in the Midwest, we're all familiar with the fact that the two coasts of our country view us as flyover country, that there's really interesting stuff on the right side of the map, and really interesting stuff on the left side of the map, and you've just got to take a plane to get over all of the blah in the middle of the map. We approach passages of Scripture as flyover territory sometimes. Particularly, we think of the introduction to epistles as if there's nothing valuable there, we really need to get down into it, or we think of an introduction to a section like this. But we're told that all of Scripture is God-breathed, that all of it is useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. And so there is something for us here, which is why I only want us to look at the first five verses this morning, to see what it is that they say, kind of the mechanics of the passage, and then to dig into what is the heart behind that and how do we apply it. So let me just read Romans 9, 1 to 5. You can follow along with me. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services and the promises. The ancestors are theirs and from them by physical descent came the Christ who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. In order to really get our hands around what is the heart and the application of this passage, we need to understand kind of the mechanics of it. And understanding that works best, actually, if we go in reverse. So I'm going to start with verses 4 and 5, then we're going to look at verse 3, and then we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Paul lays out in uh, Romans 9, 4 and 5 this particular privilege that Israel has. In fact, he lays out eight of them eight particular privileges that his people, the Jewish people, had in relation to Christ, the Savior. Let's just walk through them. The first one is that they are Israelites. 
not merely that they're members of a particular race or a certain nation or a certain group of people. They are the people of God, specifically chosen by him, specifically named by him to be his people among all the peoples of the earth. They are Israel, called, chosen, named. That's the first one. Then the second one is, and to them belong the adoption. We hear that, and in light of what we saw in Romans chapter 8, we think of the kind of adoption that the Holy Spirit cries out from within us. Abba, Father, signifying or testifying to our adoption as sons. That was a specific adoption that happens to every individual who's been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul talks about here is a more general adoption. All of the people of Israel were adopted as God's chosen people. Every single one of them, in a general sense, brought in as God's people. Paul's gonna say in Romans 9, 6, if you just wanna look down there, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Translation, not all who were generally adopted are going to be specifically adopted in their justification. Not everybody who's Israel is going to be part of the specific justified and glorified group that Romans 8 talks about. He goes on. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, specifically the glory of having heard from and lived in special relationship with God. God has shown this particular people, the Israelites, something of himself, something of his nature, something of his glory in a way that he hasn't done for any other group of people on the face of the planet. Think of Moses going up onto the mountain to receive the law and the Lord descends upon the mountain in like a cloud. Moses comes down from that cloud and his face is radiant because he has seen something of the glory of God. And the Israelite people are even afraid to look at Moses because what's radiating from Moses is too strong and too powerful. They saw something specific of God's glory. As they wandered through the wilderness, the Lord led them in a plume of fire at night and a plume of smoke during the day. They saw something specific of the glory of God in a way that nobody else in the history of humanity has seen. They didn't just have a knowledge of the glory of God, they had a special view of it, a particular glimpse of it. It had been manifested to them in a certain way. But that's not all. Not only do they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, but they were, uh, the adoption, the glory, but they were given the covenants. The biblical definition of a covenant is a gracious act of the Lord in which he pledges himself to do something. God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will do it. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. I'm going to do that work. Covenants are not God and humanity bargaining with each other to reach some sort of agreement. When we think about covenants in our sort of modern lens, we think of two people signing a contract. That's bargaining. My mother was either the world's greatest or the world's worst bargainer. She would say something like, you need to be home by 10 tonight. I would think to myself, I would really prefer 10.30, so I'll suggest 11. How about 11? My mom would say 9.30. You don't understand the point of bargaining, mom. We were supposed to come to the middle here. I'll take 10 o'clock, pretend this conversation never happened. That's not a covenant. That is a bargain. God gave the Israelite people something specific, a particular privilege. He gave them the covenants. He said, I am going to do this 
on behalf of you, not only on behalf of you, but in you and through you as a people. Specifically, what's in view, is, in view here is the covenant with Abraham to bless him and make him a people and to be a blessing, that that people would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And then that covenant is continually deepened and clarified and restated to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David. Those covenants pointed to the fact that a savior was coming. There's this particular group of people, the Israelites, who have a general sort of adoption, have seen in a specific way the glory of the Lord in a way that nobody else has, and they've been given these covenants, but that's not all. They were also given the law. Not only has God revealed himself to them and made these promises and stated what he's going to do, but he's also told them how it is to live in right relationship with him. This is what it should look like. And the emphasis here is not on the Israelites having the law. The emphasis is on God giving it to them, graciously saying for them, this is what it looks like to live in relationship with me. And again, because of what we know from earlier in Romans, but also from scripture in general, the law wasn't given to them so that they would be able to live perfectly in relationship with God. It was given to them in order to highlight the fact that they needed a savior The covenants promised that that savior was coming. The glory was the picture of the fact that here's this God who's glorious and can achieve this covenant despite the fact that I can't do it myself. They've got this particular privilege. Not only were they given the law, but then also the temple service or your translation might say something about temple worship or just worship. God didn't just tell the Israelite people, here's how you live in right relationship with me. He also said, here's how you worship me correctly. Here are the sacrifices, the temple plans, the tabernacle plans. Here are the people that you should set apart to do this and how they should do it. No one else in all of humanity had that, just the Israelite people. And then Paul ends verse four with the seventh item of their privilege, and that's these promises. Covenants were general announcements about what God was going to do. Promises are the blessings that flow out of those covenants. See how we've come full circle here. Paul says in Romans 8, you have these unbelievable promises thanks to your justification. The logical question from a Jewish person would be, can I actually trust those? Paul says, absolutely. You had particular privilege here in seeing these promises firsthand from generations ago. And you can trust the consistency of the word and the work of the Lord in bringing about those promises to his people, to humanity. Paul's going to display that going forward here, that there's promises that come from that covenant, that come from the blessings of justification, should have been Israel particularly. That they should have been the ones who saw those and recognized those and saw that Christ was the fulfillment of that and therefore took those in for themselves and cherished them. But they missed it. And it's almost unthinkable because of the eighth point of their privilege here, of their advantage here, that they are the ancestors, that from them by physical descent came the Christ or the Messiah. They had this lineage. The Messiah came through the Israelites just as God said he would. And not only that, but the end of verse uh, five is a powerful statement. The ancestors are theirs and from them by physical descent came the Christ who is God over all, praise forever. The son, the Messiah came through the Israelite people and he is 
God. He has power and authority over everything. That's who he is. In all of those statements, Paul's making one thing clear. The Israelite people, the Jews, are totally unique in their knowledge of and relationship to God. That he's made himself known to them and pledged himself to them in a way that's unlike anything else for any other people in all of human history. But despite that particular advantage and those particular privileges, when it came to seeing and believing in the Messiah, they missed it. John 1, verse 11, he came to his own, but his people did not receive him. This particular people with a particular advantage have perpetrated a particular tragedy, and that's that they missed the Savior. They missed the the Messiah, and that creates something within Paul. Jump back up to verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. That for I could wish is going to start to describe a particular desire within Paul. For I could wish is a tense of verb, which is uh, known as the imperfect tense. It signifies an ongoing action that was moving toward completion, but then something jumped in and stopped it. We have this verb tense in English. We use it when a loved one is sick and we see them in pain or discomfort of some particular type. And we think to ourselves, maybe particularly as parents, who are watching their child in pain or their child be sick, and we think, if I could, I would trade them places. I would take their pain upon myself so that they could feel better. That's the imperfect. I wish I could do that. I realize I can't. It's not possible. But if I could, I would do it in a heartbeat. What does Paul say that he would take upon himself? Well, he says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. The word there in Greek is anathema. The literal definition for anathema is a thing devoted to God without hope of being redeemed. Paul says, I could wish, if it were possible, that I would be cut off from Christ, cursed, set aside for his wrath, set apart for destruction, so that my people might know who Jesus is. Paul says, make me a curse, give me no hope, Cut me off. If it were possible, I wish that God would set me apart for his wrath in order that my people might be set apart for justification and for eternity with him. Send me to hell if it were possible that they might go to heaven. That's the desire that Paul has. Knowing all these advantages that the Israelites had, all these particular privileges, and yet they missed who Jesus was, Paul says, I wish it were possible that I could be cut off, that they might be brought in to Christ. Martin Luther, in commenting on Romans 9, 3, says this, It seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. That's the picture of Paul's desire on behalf of the Israelite people. And incidentally, but certainly not coincidentally, it's the exact model of Christ. There is only one person in all of history, who allowed himself to experience all of the wrath and punishments of sin so that someone else might experience all the blessings of God's goodness and his grace. That person is Jesus Christ. He died as our substitute. Romans has made that clear up to this point. He took our sin that we might receive his righteousness. Paul says, if it were possible, I would have myself sent to hell in order that the Israelites might spend eternity with God. 
It's not possible, but he would have that if it were. And there's a reason for it. Let's look at verses one and two. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The weight of eternity, the particular gravity of eternity presses in on Paul here. And it creates emotions within him, very strong emotions. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, literally bitter grief and incessant pain. My heart is heavy, Paul says, because of the reality of eternity and the fact that my brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, the Israelites, are destined to be cut off, many of them, from Christ. They're destined to be anathema. I would take it for them if I could. My heart is heavy. The the grief is unyielding. The anguish is bitter and it hurts. And I would do anything if I could in order to trade them places. There's a picture um, here of what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 23. Just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem and is arrested and eventually crucified, he stands outside of Jerusalem and he's looking down over the city. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He weeps over the Israelite people. He weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, that you would be willing to see who I am and to be brought in. Paul has the same grief, the same weeping, the same anguish over the Israelite people. Oh, that you would be brought in. And then three different ways he tries to speak force behind how serious he is about this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm I'm literally in him by my justification. The Holy Spirit is in me thanks to my justification. I cannot lie because when I speak, I speak in Christ. The Holy Spirit is inside of me. It's totally antithetical to who Jesus is that I would lie. Many sermon, consider that the next time you're tempted to stretch, evade, or not tell the truth. Paul says, I'm in Christ. How could I possibly be dishonest? How could I lie to you? I can't. I'm telling you the truth. And then as uh, the, the scripture does very frequently, something stated in the positive is then stated in the negative as a reinforcement. I speak the truth in Christ with all the force behind that. And then he reinforces it by saying, I am not lying. And then there's a third statement about the veracity of what he's saying here. He says, my conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. We all have a conscience, but we all also recognize that our conscience is fallible. There are aspects of our conscience that aren't perfectly aligned with God's word. But the one thing that can take a human conscience and sear it and sanctify it to the place where it does align perfectly with God and his word is the Holy Spirit. Paul says, my my conscience testifies in the Holy Spirit that I am telling the truth. My conscience has been seared by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It has been brought into alignment with the word of God and it testifies along with my conscience that I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. This is like when your child tries to tell you that that they are absolutely telling the truth and they offer their pinky. I pinky promise. Paul says, I'm as serious as I can possibly be. I am not lying that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
and I wish that I could be cut off and accursed so that my people might be saved. As strongly as he can state it, he pleads with them. I'm telling you the truth. The stakes are high. Eternity hangs in the balance. God has been so good and so gracious to my Israelite brothers and sisters. He's so consistent. He's so holy. I would give myself so that they might be saved, every single one of them. Hear what I'm saying, he pleads. He's going to go on from here, and he's going to display the consistency and the holiness of God's word and God's work in justifying humanity. But he starts by unfolding his heart for his people. He knows that what he's about to say is not going to be received with great joy by his Jewish brothers and sisters. And yet he wants them to hear his heart before he unfolds for them the truth. That's the central thrust of the passage. That's what this paragraph is doing in the long scheme of of the book of Romans. Sometimes our application of a passage of scripture comes not from necessarily the central point, uh, but from the implications of that point. And that's the case this morning. This paragraph implies certain things that should absolutely stir us and move us to our very core as followers of Jesus Christ. Let me lay out three of them for you and land us in a spot of how is it that we apply Romans 9, 1 to 5. The first one is this. The gospel divides. Let me read Romans 9, 1 to 5 again. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. Why does he say that? What's the flip side? I would take the curse. I would take the cutting off because I know for a fact that some of them are going to be anathema and cut off. The gospel divides. Last week in Romans chapter eight, we talked about these incredible promises and Paul laces those promises with the word us. Therefore, a specific people, the people who've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That means they're not for another group of people, those who have not been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We allow ourselves to be divided by all sorts of earthly, human, ultimately trivial things sports teams, places where we live, age, race, gender, generations, politics. We allow ourselves to be divided by all of those items. And yet for some, even within the church, when we come to talk about the division that the gospel creates in eternal division, we get uncomfortable and kind of squirmy that like, oh, it's not okay that maybe there would be absolutely one way to heaven and that there would be some who aren't going to be there. That is the division that the gospel creates. And that division is heartbreaking for Paul. It's a reality, but it breaks his heart that some of his Jewish brothers and sisters would end up on the outside of that division. There's another implication though. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. Your, your version might say, according to the flesh or by the flesh. While the gospel divides, the gospel also unites. Paul offers that qualifier on the end of that because it must mean that he has brothers and sisters that aren't by this flesh, that aren't according to the flesh. 
This is the only place in all of Paul's writing where he uses that phrase, brothers and sisters, to uh, talk about his Jewish or Israelite ancestors or Jewish or Israelite people. Every other place Paul uses that, he's talking about his brothers and sisters as being the church. The gospel unites. Paul's heart is broken for his kinsmen in the flesh, his brothers and sisters according to the flesh. There's a division, and yet there's also this incredible unity, this unifying that comes from the gospel. The church is the single most diverse body on the face of the planet, and it is the gospel that has brought us together here on earth and will fix us together in a beautifully diverse unity in the eternal future. The gospel divides, but it also unites. And then it does one other thing, and this is the key. The gospel divides, the gospel unites, the gospel creates a particular yearning. Notice what the gospel doesn't do within Paul. And it doesn't do this within any of the authors or figures of the New Testament. The gospel doesn't give them a place to go on Sunday morning should there not be something better. The gospel doesn't merely provide for Paul or any other New Testament figure a social club to be a part of. It doesn't just create a loosely connected group of individuals that we kind of deal with on Sunday mornings but don't really have anything in common with. What the gospel does do is it creates this unbelievable unity for all believers. And within that unity, it creates a desire, a particular yearning for all believers that those who are outside would be brought in. We've talked at various points throughout Uh, Romans thus far about what it is to be mission driven. There maybe isn't a better picture of Paul's mission driven desire than Romans 9, 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for the sake of my brothers and sisters. He yearns for that. Those who truly know the grace and mercy of God in Christ have hearts that absolutely break in this kind of way for those who are outside of Christ, those who are outside of the gospel. How could you see and know the goodness of Jesus and not want with all of your heart for the entirety of the world to know it and receive it by grace through faith? It would be, it should be absolutely impossible, unthinkable to approach life in any kind of other way. We as the church are united by the gospel and ought to be united in one heart that says, I cannot believe that there would be people outside of this. I would give everything for them to be brought in. If it were possible, I would go so far as to be cut off from Christ that they would be brought into the gospel. It's not possible, but if it were, I would take that trade. Me for billions of people. That's the implication of this text. One sermon that I read on Romans 9 verse 3, um, the pastor said this, there's no better test of our spiritual state and condition than our missionary zeal, our concern for lost souls. That is always the thing that divides people who are just theoretical and intellectual Christians from those who have a living and vital spiritual life. If we do not have this zeal, we have failed somehow to realize the truth about salvation itself and still more have failed to realize the condition and fate of the lost. Heaven and hell are not theoretical realities. They are eternal truths. 
And to know that Romans 8 and all of its wonderful security and blessings is ours should create a yearning inside of us that all of humanity would know the same. You might be sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, Tim, I get it. I understand that someone like Joe, our missions pastor, has this unbelievable heart for the lost, both here among us and for evangelism, but also for missions in cross-cultural settings. And that's cool. Like that's his passion and his thing and his gifts. And he likes to do evangelism, but that's not me. I have other passions and other gifts and I serve in other ministries. Absolutely true. But the unifying thing behind every single one of us ought to be that with all of those gifts, with all of those passions, with all of those different ministries, we're serving the fact that there are people who don't know the message of the gospel and absolutely need it. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. Our hearts should long for that to be the case, that every person would hear the gospel, that every person would be brought into heaven, that hell would be an empty place because heaven would be overflowing with the souls of every single human being. That's the yearning that we should have. The gospel should create that inside of us. And so we have to ask ourselves a ruthlessly self-reflective question. What is my heart for the lost around me? I don't know how far you drove to get here. I don't know how many houses you passed along the way. I don't know how many cars you passed along the way, probably of other people headed to church on a Sunday morning. Did you even give a second thought to those who don't know the gospel? Are you cold and apathetic and mostly uncaring to the reality that there are millions among us here in America who know nothing of the gospel and billions of people around the world who might not even have an opportunity to hear it? Charles Spurgeon, a pastor from the 1800s, says this, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Brian, you guys... It can come on up. I don't want to push this too far, but think of the parallels in terms of Israel and America in terms of advantage. Here in the U.S., we have more Bible translations and access to Scripture than any other place on the face of the planet. I was at Wycliffe Bible Translations campus in Orlando not long ago, and you can walk through the halls of this campus and lining all of the hallways of every building are these cases that have Bibles in them. And it tells you what continent and what country and what people group that translation of scripture is for. And the vast majority of the countries and people groups have one option. And then you get to the North America case. And it is like a full bookcase, ceiling to floor, you know, wider than my arms of just every single translation that's available for people who speak English. There are churches on almost every corner in suburban America. There are family histories of generations of believers. We have more believers per capita in this nation than almost any other nation in the history of humanity. We have more accurate Bible teaching taking place every single Sunday than some people groups have had in the entirety of their existence. And yet... There are millions that don't know. And so as you drove here this morning and you passed your neighbor's house, 
your friend's house, the house of the coach of your kid's soccer team or your child's piano teacher? Did you even give a second thought to their reality, eternal reality? It should be the singular cry of our hearts that differentiates us from the world that we yearn for those who are lost. We recognize that there's a divide created by the gospel. We recognize that there's a unity created by the gospel and we feel this yearning inside of us created by the gospel to where there would be some group of people somewhere. I don't know who that would be in your life that you look at or you think about and your heart truly cries out, if it were possible, I'd trade heads up so that that person might know Jesus Christ. Me for them. Cut me off that they might be brought in. Send me to hell that they might go to heaven. Make me anathema that they might be justified. I say this gently, but pastorally, and I put myself in the exact same category, we need to repent. We need to repent of our apathy. We need to repent of our coldness, of our callousness, of our laziness, of our passiveness, of our unwillingness. What we're going to do is we're going to spend the end of our service here in worship like we typically do. But that might look differently for you this morning. You might need to spend some time here in prayer, repenting for a heart that cares little for the lost. And maybe it's not just that intellectually you think, well, no, I do care, Tim. I care for the lost. Maybe what you need to spend some time repenting of is your apathy in relation to the care, your effort in relation to the care, your lack of prayer in relation to that care. I know that I need to repent of that. There are times I stand up here on a Sunday morning and I forget to share the gospel, to make an invitation that people today can receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ and spend eternity enjoying the blessings of Romans chapter 8. And I need to repent of that. I drive four minutes from my house to work. I probably pass a few thousand people who live in houses and very rarely do I give a second thought to what eternal reality might be for the people who inhabit those homes. We need to repent. And so you might stand and sing with us as we close. You might sit and pray. You might ask that the Holy Spirit take hold of your heart and like this song says, light a fire inside of you that the earth might see the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ.